0: All right, so we are in the midst of a sermon series um, that we are calling things that I wish Jesus had never said. Things I wish Jesus had never said. There are any number of different books that have been written on this topic before called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. I basically flat out stole this from a buddy of mine who preached it somewhere else. Um, the truth is, there are lots of things in the Bible. When you read them, you kind of cringe. And, uh, and the, the reason you cringe is because when Jesus speaks, he's either saying something that's really hard, really difficult, it's personally challenging, or sometimes Jesus says something and you go, wow, that just sort of offends my southern politeness, right? And so we are covering these various sayings of Jesus where sometimes we go, ooh, I kind of wish Jesus hadn't said that, right? So here are the different uh, verses we've covered so far, different passages of Scripture. The first passage of Scripture we've covered is from Luke chapter 6, and it's where Jesus says, but to you who are listening... In other words, some of you have left already. But to those of you who are left, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. That's a hard one, right? If you want to know what any of that means, go to our website, listen to the sermon, or we'll talk about it later. The next passage we talked about. It was Luke chapter 14 where Jesus said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple again wow that's just a tough tough saying next slide we covered this a couple of weeks ago it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of god the problem With that statement is that according to all the research that exists, we are part of what we would call the global elite. In other words, we're the wealthiest 1% in the world. And we don't feel wealthy sometimes because we're not comparing ourselves to people that live in Sudan or who live in Haiti, but rather we compare ourselves to one another. But the truth is we're wealthy. And Jesus makes it very clear that it's very difficult for someone who's wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Today, we're going to talk about a passage from Matthew chapter 8, The central phrase that we're looking at, and we're going to talk about the whole passage, is where Jesus um, speaks to this disciple of his, not one of the formal 12 disciples, but somebody who's been following him. It says, Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. We're going to jump into this in a moment, but before we jump into Matthew chapter eight, let me give a little context. So Matthew chapter eight is at the beginning um, of the book of Matthew, the story of, of, uh, of Jesus that Matthew tells. And so preceding this section, Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, we've had the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7 recounts Jesus preaching this message to the Jews on this hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And in it, Jesus says all this great stuff. People love the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the very end of it, he gives them you know, all these directives. And at the end, he says, oh, by the way, don't judge lest, uh, lest you be judged. Love it. After that, he went on and he heals a leper, right? And so people, he, he preaches this sermon, then he heals somebody who's a leper. And then later on, he heals the servant of a centurion who people would have perceived to be an enemy of God. And yet sh- Jesus shows him this, uh, this centurion grace. He shows him mercy. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus casts out demons, right? And so you can just imagine, of course, again, this is early on in the gospels, that everybody is just, they're excited, They're thrilled. They want to be near Jesus. They want to get some of whatever he's got, right? And uh, they all want a piece of him. And there's just a circus-like atmosphere that surrounds him. And into this circus-like atmosphere, many of these people begin to sincerely consider pursuing Jesus. That's where we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. If you have a Bible, you can follow along with me. If not, you can take a look at the screen says this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith. Why? Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this story that we have recorded um, that demonstrates um, the humanity of your son, but that also demonstrates his divinity. Father, we thank you for this story uh, that demonstrates that Jesus has power over angels and demons and over sickness and over life and over death and even over storms. Father, I pray that it is this Jesus that we would encounter this morning um, as we worship you. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I don't know how many of you guys have ever wondered before where all the Christians were in Germany when Hitler began to take power. Has anybody ever wondered about that before? You know, it's very easy sometimes to look at issues like slavery in the United States or uh, the rise of the Nazi Party in Germany and kind of go, hey, How come all the Christians kept their mouths shut? Well, the reality is a lot of them did, but not all of them did. There was a man uh, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe some of you have heard of him before, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian. He was a pastor. He was a a thinker, a scholar, and he was a man that stood in opposition uh, to the Nazi party. He stood uh, in opposition to Hitler. He was born into a wealthy and privileged German family. He was uh, a twin, and uh, he and his sister were the sixth and seventh members of the family. And uh, the family was not only privileged, not only wealthy, but they prized and valued academics. And so by the time Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 25 years old, he had already done two doctorates. By the way, when you live in a world with very little TV and no internet connection, it's amazing what you can get done, right? You know what I mean? Especially in Germany when it's freezing cold six months out of the year. You're like, well, I guess I'm going to stay inside and work on another doctorate. Anyway. So this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What's interesting is, so he you know, did his second doctorate, but he was still too young to be ordained in the Lutheran Church, and so he decided to come to the United States and to study at Union Seminary in New York City. While he was studying um, at Union Seminary, he attended an African-American church called the Abyssinian Baptist Church, right? Right? And so here's this German guy, and it's in the 20s, the 1920s, maybe uh, toward the end of his time there, the early 30s. And he says, I'm going I'm to worship at this church in Harlem, New York, right? This German, German guy, this major theologian. And what's interesting is what he said is, my time there at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, uh, he said, this is where uh, my phraseology or theology turned into reality. In other words, he said prior to that point in time, theology, phraseology, Christianity was all sort of theoretical to me, but all of a sudden when I was worshiping there at that African-American church, it all became real. He goes on and on about the preaching. He goes on and on about the power of those people who essentially are standing as believers in opposition, in opposition uh, to persecution that's happening in the culture. So he spent time there, and it, it really shaped who he was. Uh, in 1939, he returned, um, back, or he returned back to Germany, spent some time in Germany, did some different roles there. And as things heated up and as the Nazis took power, he very overtly and obviously stood against the Nazi party, so much so that things became very dangerous for him. He started an underground seminary, even while publicly speaking against Hitler and against the Nazi party. Things began to get so bad that in 19. 19- 39, he returned back to the United States. Of course, course, by this time, uh, World War II had begun. And so he came back to the United States. He spent several months here, and as he watched what was happening over in Germany, he, uh, he wrote to a friend. He said, it's not right for me to be here in the United States in the midst of all of this safety while the Christians at home are being persecuted and suffering for what they believe. And so he actually got on the last ocean liner that took a trip from the United States back to Germany. He made it back to Germany And in 1943, he spent time, again, uh, involving himself in all sorts of anti-Nazi party, uh, publicly, things that were public and things that were not so public. And he was arrested um, for a plot to overthrow Hitler. He was thrown into a concentration camp where he spent the next year and a half of his life. While he was in this concentration camp, he continued to preach the gospel. He continued to speak against Hitler. And in 1945, he was sentenced to be hanged. But what we have here, I've got a, a quote uh, from the doctor who was at this hanging, and here's what the camp doctor had to say about this man who wrote a book, by the way, called The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to what the camp doctor had to say about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, he said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In almost the 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So where were all the Christians that stood against uh, Hitler, that stood against Nazi Germany? Many of them died in concentration camps, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who understood his call to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple, he understood that that calling was gonna cost him potentially everything, and it did. It cost him his comfort, it cost him his family, Right. it cost him relationships, it cost him security, it ultimately cost him safety, and then his life. Right. So many people over the years and many people in our culture say they want to follow Jesus, and they probably think that they really do, but it becomes readily apparent in this passage that there is a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus, essentially, in talking to these various people, makes them aware of what those costs are going to be. What we need to know this morning is if we choose to follow Jesus, it might just cost us everything, just like it cost Dietrich Bonhoeffer his life. Let's take a look at this passage, Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. One of the things that Jesus highlights in this passage is that the cost of following him is very simply our comfort, maybe more deeply home. Here's what we read in this passage, verse 18. It says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And this is a picture of Jesus' humanity here. Jesus was tired out, right? Preached the Sermon on the Mount, he healed a bunch of people. He cast out demons. People were sort of following him all over the place. He was worn out. He was exhausted. The people were crowding around him to see more miracles and to hear him you know, teach more. But he was physically and emotionally fatigued, completely spent. And he had something else, frankly, on his agenda that superseded the needs of even all of those very needy people. Verse 19. says this, then a teacher of the law, it's kind of a high-powered person, came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now let me... Let me unpack this, and we'll just keep that on the screen for a few minutes. This person that came to Jesus was a teacher of the law. He was, a, he was probably a Sadducee. This is a person who was probably wealthy. It was somebody who was probably powerful. And this guy was so impressed with Jesus that he basically said, hey, I want you to be my rabbi, and I want, you, I want to be your follower. Like, I want to be sort of part of your coaching tree, for want of a better term. And being the student of a, of a famous rabbi was respectable, right? It was safe. It was comfortable. It could even be profitable. And this guy comes up to Jesus and he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus, of course, we see how he responds in just a moment. But what's interesting is the way that Jesus responds to him, and you can see it up here, is Jesus doesn't respond by saying, hey, by the way, I'm not a rabbi. Jesus responds by calling himself the son of man. In other words, Jesus is insinuating that even though we just saw a picture of his humanity, he was tired out, he was exhausted, he needed some space, Here we see a picture of his divinity. This term son of man comes from the book of Daniel. It was somewhat obscure, but it referred to the Messiah. And again, it was a hint to Jesus' divinity. And part of what Jesus was doing is he was correcting this man's misperception of who he was. I'm not just a rabbi, I'm the son of man, I'm divine. Jesus then goes on to say this. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests. Essentially what Jesus is saying is the cost of following me Is that you're going to lose much, right? You're going to lose your comfort. You may very well lose someplace to call home. The price, the cost of following Jesus is always much more than we think it is. It can be our comfort, it can be our home. Now, over the years, I've used illustrations of Eric Little a few times in here. You guys have maybe heard of the movie Chariots of Fire. Here's a picture of Eric Little. And uh, so Eric Little, the story is just fantastic. Eric Little was a a Scottish sprinter who ran in the 1924 Olympics. Maybe you've heard the story. He's the one who was a Christian uh, when his 100 meter dash, which was his best race, when one of the heats was scheduled on a Sunday, he said, "I, I can't run it. I've got to honor the Sabbath, right? And so uh, what ended up happening is they gave him another race in a distance that he hadn't even been training for. The distance was the 400 meters. Now, if you're in track and field out here, you know what a very different race the 100 is from the 400. And the amazing thing about this Olympics is he went on to win the 400 meters at the Paris Olympics. It's fantastic. And so part of what happened as a result of him winning a gold medal in the Parisian Olympics is he became amazingly popular and famous, right? And so you can just imagine, you know, here's Eric Little. He's like, hey, I'm famous. I've got money, right? Life is good. And you can just imagine, he's like, I'm going to capitalize this. I'm going to go on a speaking tour. You know, I'm going I'm to, you know, sort of reap the rewards, the comforts, the benefits of all of this fame that's been afforded to me. But instead what he does is in 1925, so less than a year later, he goes to China where he serves as a missionary, as he serves as a missionary all the way until 1943 there in China when Japan takes over the section of China uh, that he was a missionary in and imprisons he and his brother. And so they're in a, essentially what's an in, called an internment camp. And so in that internment camp, uh, the conditions, as you might imagine, were incredibly poor. There was very little food. Uh, there was disease. There was you know, all sorts of horrible um, situation that he had to deal with there. There were children that were part of a missionary school there. There were, there were Chinese people who had stood in opposition to the Japanese um, government. They're all stuck in this internment camp together. We actually have records of Eric Little's life in this internment camp. He essentially... Um, basically spent time loving on people, right? There were a bunch of kids in the camp, and so he would spend his, um, his days creating games for the kids to play, playing soccer with them, playing checkers with them, spending time with them, encouraging them, breaking up fights. With the adults that were in the internment camp, he spent his time trying to get them to uh, quit sort of operating his factions against one another, hoarding food from each other. Some of the rich people in the camp had some benefits that the poor people didn't have, and he essentially saw himself as a disciple of Christ in the midst of all of that squalor and all of that suffering, right? What's interesting is there were several times where the Japanese government offered to release him, probably as an act of getting some political goodwill. And instead of taking their offer to leave um, all of that squalor and all that suffering, he actually used that in order to negotiate the release of several other people who were, in his eyes, uh, more needy than he was. And what was interesting is, A couple of months before the end of the war, um, he was playing in a courtyard and he collapsed, malnourished and exhausted. Unknowingly at the time, he had an inoperable brain tumor and he died there in that internment camp. Langdon Gilkey, who was an American theologian and pastor, was with uh, Eric Little in that camp. And here's what he had to say about Little. He said, often In an evening, I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance, absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of the penned-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life and with enthusiasm and charm. It's rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to anyone I've ever known. Little, on numerous occasions, refused again Japanese offers to leave, instead negotiating the release of what he deemed to be more needy individuals. So he died in 1945 in that internment camp. His last words were, It's complete surrender, in reference to how he had given his life to God. The cost of discipleship for Eric Little, for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was not just the loss of his comfort, it was the loss of a place to call home, it was the loss. Of his life the call to, to christianity is always this call to costly discipleship the call to follow jesus the price is always higher than we think it is even though we've lived in a time where we haven't had to deal with that we're called to sacrifice our comfort we're called to sacrifice and to pay the price even of a place to call home the question that i have for you this morning is has following jesus been costly for you has following jesus been costly for you if so Um, think about that. And if not, um, ask yourself why. Has the call of Jesus been costly for you? Not only is following Jesus costly in terms of our comfort, but it also costs us in terms of our relationships. Listen to verses 21 and 22. Again, this is taken from Matthew chapter eight. And so this um, teacher of the law has already come up to Jesus and said, you know, I want to be your follower. Here it says in verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father but jesus told him follow me and let the dead bury their own dead now i don't know about you but when i read that again this is just like one of those other statements where you read it and the southern nice guy in me just cringes like oh jesus holy cow man that's not really kind it's not very gentle like i thought you were the guy that carried a lamb on your shoulders and were gentle and kind to people and this sounds harsh right And it was somewhat harsh, but it's actually not quite as harsh as it seems. Um, I'll get into that in a minute. One of the reasons it's not as harsh is because uh, Jewish law demanded that if someone died, they were buried in 24 hours. And so this man's father was obviously not dead yet in the words of Monty Python. He was not dead yet, right? But probably his father was aging. And what this man was saying is, hey, I, I wanna follow you. Like I wanna be on your team, but I sort of need to fulfill my duty to my aging parents first and then I'll come and follow you. And Jesus goes, hey, listen, I'm sorry. There, there's actually a fidelity to me, or there's a cost to following me that really supersedes your fidelity even to your family. There's a, a theologian named Leon Morris who says this, the claims of the kingdom are always absolute. They're always immediate, right? Those claims and costs uh, are not only comfort and security, but here we see that they're relational as well. Uh, there's a story that was told by a man named Haddon Robinson. Haddon Robinson is a, is a preacher. And uh, he tells a story of meeting a Muslim man on a tour of Turkey not long ago. He says this, he says, "'Several years ago, I helped lead a tour in Turkey "'of the churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. "'On the last night, we were in the city of Izmir "'and were having dinner with one, in one of its nicer hotels. "'Our guide had been in the United States at least 10 years "'and spoke English flawlessly. "'As we were eating, he began to ask us questions.' Serious questions about the Christian faith. I said to him, if you're a follower of Islam, and if you died tonight, would you be sure that you could stand in the presence of Allah? No, he replied. There are five things that Muslims should do, and I've only done two out of the five. Then we began to talk about the gospel. We talked about it long into the night, and before we left, I said to him, look, if you're serious about our conversation, uh, I know that it would not be faithful of me not to ask you if right now you'd like to put your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. He said to me, you don't know what you're asking me. Do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced it to anybody, my wife would leave me. My family would disown me. My boss would fire me. I may want to leave and go back to the United States and the government would never give me an exit visa. I'd give up everything. You'd go back home tomorrow and I would not expect you to support me and I would starve to death in my own culture. As far as I know, he did not trust Christ that night, but there are people who have made that decision and suffered all of that loss and endured those hardships because they are Christ's followers. Did you, I don't know if you kind of caught it there, but in the middle of this Muslim man saying, do you know what you're asking me? He said, my wife would leave me. You know, my family, not just my children, but my broader family would disown me. I'd be fired for my job. The relational costs would be enormous. I would be left alone in this Muslim culture to die on my own if I truly decided to become a follower of Jesus. He absolutely understood the costs of following Jesus. Now, most of us in this room haven't had to, to count those costs just yet. We haven't been, been faced with that type of cost to following Jesus But we faced other relational costs, right? I mean, some of you who grew up in non Christian homes, you know, maybe you became a Christian in college or in high school through Young Life or through Campus Outreach or through RUF. And maybe you went home and you told your unbelieving family that now all of a sudden you're a Christian. And all of a sudden, guess what? There is relational division. You know, if you became a Christian in high school, or in college, or even later on in life, and you used to sort of run with a wild crowd, and you became a Christian, and you told anybody about it, all of a sudden, there's a relational price to pay, right? All of a sudden, those people look at you like you're kind of nuts, that you're kind of crazy, right? That's a relational cost. You know, for Krista and I to move here to Rome, Georgia, paid kind of a big relational cost. I don't, I'm not saying this to pat ourselves on the back necessarily, um, but we were living on Lookout Mountain where uh, two of the five guys in my accountability group are, right? We had tons of friends from uh, from college. Krista had a, a you know, great group of friends up there. Lookout Mountain was a wonderful place. And we really felt called into ministry. Part of what we understood God was calling us to was really to go someplace where we didn't know anybody and where we felt like we had an opportunity to preach the gospel, and uh, the truth is, we didn't know even then um, just how hard that decision would be. But ultimately, what we decided was that following Jesus meant leaving those relationships somewhat behind in order to follow Him. Some of you in this room have already paid a similar relational cost as you've followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Following Jesus is always costly. It really is. It's always costly. It at least will it will cost you comfort. Right. It may cost you a place to call home, but there'll always be a relational cost to following Jesus. And again, I would ask you, what's the relational cost that you've paid to become a follower of Jesus? Have you paid a similar price? The last thing we see in this um, section is that not only is comfort a cost, not only are relationships a cost, but safety and security are a cost that we may have to pay when we decide to follow Jesus. Look at verses 23 through 26. It says this, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Now, let me call time out here really quickly and say this is interesting because the first guy was, um, Matthew calls a teacher of the law. The second guy was another disciple. It's so a little bit closer to him. But in this passage, we hear about his disciples. It's much more personal at this point. Suddenly, a furious storm, seismos in Greek, Came upon the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. Again, the Greek term here is interesting. It's kaluptasai, and what it means is that the boat was covered over, right? So it wasn't a little storm; it wasn't a little thunderstorm on the lake, but it was the storm that was literally almost filling the boat with water. It says this: Matthew, the tax collector, by the way, says this. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, "Lord, save us! We're going to drown." Now, again, it was one thing for Matthew to be afraid because he was a tax collector. Like He may not have spent a ton of time on the water. But for the rest of these guys, half of them were fishermen. And so this wasn't just an itty-bitty little storm for them to be afraid of. This must have been a legitimate storm that they would be fearful. Peter, James, John, the others, they were fishermen. They'd grown up on the Sea of Galilee. They couldn't remember a time when they couldn't swim. And they knew that the storm was the real thing. And Jesus very intentionally led them right into the middle of it. Verse 26, he replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Now, one of the things we see in this passage is that his, his disciples, not the teacher of the law, not another disciple, but his disciples followed him, right? The first two characters in the story, when they were faced with the reality of following Jesus, they made the decision not to follow him. Here, at least his disciples acted, all, although it was imperfectly, as we'll see in a minute, but at least they decided to follow him. Again, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? The previous Sadducee and the other disciple whom Jesus addressed were both afraid of losing something, namely comfort and home and relational loss. And that fear stood in the way of them following Jesus. In other words, the cost was too frightening. The cost was too scary. The price was too high for them to follow Jesus, right? And so here the disciples, at least they follow Jesus. And if there'd been any pride on their part, like, hey, look at us, we follow Jesus. Then uh, at this point in the middle of this storm, whatever pride they had was shattered as they came face to face with their own fear, right? Fear that made them question God's goodness. Fear that made them question his faithfulness. Fear that made them question their decision. Fear that made them question who Jesus was, right? Same thing happens to us all the time. How quickly they forgot all that they had seen Jesus do in the previous couple of days. I mean, he cast out demons, right? He healed sick people from the dead. He was doing all these things and they forget all of it in the midst of their own fear of possibly losing their own lives. Again, we're no different than the disciples, no different at all. We, those of us in this room, we're all scared to death. We are all scared to death of something. We really are. We're scared of spiders, we're scared of snakes, tight spaces. Some of us are afraid of heights, we're afraid of public speaking. Some of us are afraid of going out in public, economic collapse. We're afraid of nuclear holocaust and the bird flu. Some of you are acutely afraid of tests and papers that you may have this very week. I watched a show one time where people were afraid of pickles. Seriously, it was a show where this lady was scared of the pickles. And on that same show, there were people who were afraid of cotton balls and balloons. Right? We're afraid of all sorts of things. We're afraid of rejection right? We're really, really afraid of being rejected by other people. That's why we tell little fibs. We're afraid of someone finding out who we really are, right? I work with men all the time. I have conversations with men, and I know one of the things that men fear the most is vulnerability. They're really, really afraid of finding, of someone finding out who they really are, right? And I know that's true with women as well. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of being alone, right? We're afraid of being unloved. We're afraid of cancer. We're afraid of losing a spouse. We're scared to death of losing a child. We, like the disciples, are afraid of dying, but Jesus didn't ask them what they were afraid of. He asked them why they were afraid. Why are you so afraid? So why were the disciples afraid? Why are we afraid? Because they, and we, we've forgotten who's lying fast asleep in the bow of the boat, right? When we fear, when the disciples feared it, it's because they forgot who it was that was in the bow of the boat. Listen to the rest of this passage. It says this, then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So in a panic, the disciples rushed to Jesus, begging him to save them. They've, they know that much at least. Jesus rises, he rebukes the seismos, and everything stops. Completely, totally, and finally, everything is quiet. Everything's quiet except the lapping of the waves against the hull of the boat and the whispers of the disciples who in their amazement want to know what kind of man is this? Hadn't they just seen what kind of man he was? I mean, he cast out demons, right? He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed a man of leprosy. The leprosy obeyed, right? The demons obeyed him. The paralyzed muscles of the centurion's servant obeyed him. The germs and the white blood cells of Peter's mother-in-law obeyed him. And now the wind and the waves of the seismos obey him too, and they die at his word. Who is, who is Jesus? He's God the Son, He's the creator of the universe. He's the author of reality. He's divinity in the clothing of humanity. He's eminence and transcendence. He's the God man. He's God asleep in the bow of the boat. Verse 27 says that the disciples were amazed. And actually, let me call time out here and say that's not exactly what Matthew says. He doesn't say the disciples were asleep or that the disciples uh, were amazed, he says the men were amazed. Or in Greek, it's the anthropoi, the humans, the human beings were amazed. So earlier, just a couple of sentences earlier, it says that uh, Matthew goes out of his way to refer to Peter, James, John, himself, and the others as his disciples, this very intimate term, his disciples. But here, Matthew calls these um, disciples, he calls them humans. He calls them human beings, right? At the climax of the story, he refers to them as human beings, emphasizing their humanity in the presence of Jesus' divinity. Does that make sense? He says they're just humans, right? They're just human beings. Of course they're scared, right? Of course they're fearful. Of course they're frightened. But they're in the presence of the divine. It's funny, as I was reading through this, uh, immediately um, as I read through it in Greek and saw that term anthropoi, I thought of the, world, the words of Psalm 103. So I realize we're going back into the Old Testament here. But listen to the words of Psalm 103. fear him. Those who stand in awe of him. Those who follow him. Those who are amazed at the man asleep in the bow of the boat. And listen to the rest of these words. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Right? Just human beings. Right? He remembers that we're only human. That we're weak that we're frail, that we're failing, that we're broken, that we're just human beings, right? So what's the ultimate cost of discipleship here that we see in this passage? The ultimate cost of discipleship is at least a confession. It's at least a confession and probably a proclamation. It's a confession that we are more broken than we realize. It's a confession that uh, that we have chosen these things that God has created over him, the creator. Like It's at least confessing that we found our identity and our comfort and we've loved that more than we loved him. It's confessing that we love our families more than we love him a lot of times. It's confessing that we choose our own safety and our own security over him. Again, a lot of the time it's in, it's confessing and admitting all of this brokenness, all of this sin, but it's also a proclamation that we're just humans and that he is God, right? He is divine. And the other thing that I would have to remind you of today is this also. We have to remember that Jesus isn't just a model who, uh, in order to save us, paid the price of his own comfort, you know, paid the price of his own relational loss with the Father, who paid the price not only of being willing to give up his safety, but being willing to die on the cross. He, he not only modeled that for us, more importantly, Jesus is not just our model, he's our substitute, right? He did all of those things on your behalf, He did all of those things because he knew that you couldn't and wouldn't do them. And so even as I said 30 minutes ago, I said, this is an invitation to rest today because the message of Christianity is always the same. This is not about what you can do for God. It's not about what Jesus can do for you. It's about, or what you can do for Jesus. It's always about what Jesus has already done for you. All you have to do is rest in Jesus. Confess that you're broken and sinful And proclaim that you trust in him alone for your salvation, your security, your ultimate comfort. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the myriad of pictures um, of the gospel in scripture. I thank you for this um, reminder of not only the costs of discipleship, but I thank you for the reminder of our humanity our frailty, our brokenness, our weakness, our fears. And Father, I thank you um, for the reminder that Jesus is our hero and that Jesus has done everything that's required for us to be secure, that Jesus has done everything that's required for us to be safe, that Jesus has done everything that is required for us to be in uh, a right relationship with you, to be adopted as your daughters, to be adopted as your sons. And Father, I thank you that even as the words of Psalm Uh, 103, remind us that you, you remember how we are formed, that you remember that we are dust, that we are just human beings. And so, Father, we place all of our hope and all of our trust in you as our Father and your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. It's in his name that we pray, amen.